Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's new daily show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on the facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During the show, we give you access to local officials and experts on COVID-19 and community actions related to it. If you have questions for our guests, please email them to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. You can find a list of upcoming guests on our Facebook page or on our website, kmxt.org. Audio from each day's program will be posted on the website. It is the Dirty Lowdown this morning. Good morning. Thanks for tuning in for today's Museums Tuesday edition of the Lowdown. Our local museums, like many organizations and businesses around town, have had to switch gears in response to the pandemic, learning how to operate in a new environment with their doors closed, yet still trying to serve their members in the community. We'll be talking to Sarah Harrington, Executive Director of the Kodiak History Museum, April Counselor, Executive Director of the Aludic Museum, and Toby Sullivan, the Executive Director of the Kodiak Maritime Museum, about their organizations, what they've been up to, and what they will be up to in regard to our current state of affairs. If you have questions, call or shoot an email, call 486-3181 or lowdown at kmxt.org and we'll try and get your question answered. Toby, Sarah, and April, good morning. Thank you for... Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, it is a lovely morning, isn't it? (laughs) Museum world, you folks are still shut down, right? Yes. You've We're been... close to the public, but we still have work to do always, I would say, yeah. Okay, well, let's let's just sort of talk individually to each of you. You know, you, um, two of you have brick-and-mortar museums that were open to the public. Toby, you have a, an exhibit down on the, on the spit. Um, that, I assume, is still operational, right? It, it is operational, yeah. We haven't been able to work on it. Yeah, this spring as we had planned, but uh, it's it's still okay. So, talk. Let's kind of slow things down. And from when you first got notification that the the museums, everything else was going to shut down, how did you go into gear and and kind of plan? Oh, how are we going to do what we're going to do with nobody Hmm. able to come see what we do? Yeah, well, the Kodiak History Museum decided to follow um, the school district's lead. And so I kind of remember very vividly on March 14th, going back and forth with the staff and my board president and saying, how are we going to handle this? And as soon as they decided, we announced immediately after that, that we were going to close in support of uh, prioritizing the community safety, even prior to the governor's mandate to close museums and libraries just a few days later. So right before spring break, right in spring break. Yeah, the Friday. It was a Friday. I think we... we, um, share the announcement on Saturday morning, and then Monday was, was maybe the day that museums and libraries were, were mandated to close. So what mode did you go into then? 
We've been working from home. Um, you know, it's it was kind of a, a good time for us to transition. We've been working on a lot of improvements at the museum to professionalize, um, make sure that we're caught up on everything and, and using, you know, current tools and, and platforms to, to do the work that we do. And so we had just pushed everything onto the cloud. We were setting up a network. Uh, Margaret's been working really hard on digitizing the collections and doing an archives inventory. So a lot of the work that we were already doing, we were able to transition pretty smoothly to doing from home. Um, you know, inventorying the archive is something that you have to do in person to look through the files and see what you have. And so we've just kind of started picking that up again. Um, but really, we just um, have been keeping on and we shifted priorities a little bit. Um, so we're working on a few new projects. Um, we're doing a day-by-day -day project to help capture what's happening now. Um, we moved our current exhibit called Hold, an Introduction to Mindfulness, online so that people can experience the exhibit and the resources shared from their homes. Um, and then we've also um, started to pick up uh, republishing um, a beloved book uh, here in Kodiak written by Carolyn Erskine called Far Away Island, which is a really exciting project to be working on right now. So how big is your staff? Right now we have three people. We uh, lost, well, we have four. Um, our fourth person is working kind of just a minimal number of hours. Um, uh, so we had two positions that were cut or significantly cut down based on childcare needs, um, not because we didn't have work available to them. So we're in a transition right now because of this. Um, and we actually just... Uh, um, opened yesterday a new position called, um, oh gosh, I have to think about it now, um, the Visitor Experience Coordinator. Sweet. Which is going to be really focused on, um, you know, maximizing patron and, and partner uh, participation in the museum. That would be a fun badge. Yeah, yeah, right? But you use volunteers too, right? We do. We have a lot of volunteers. They do all different kinds of things. Toby is a volunteer for our museum. He serves on the board of directors of the Kodiak Historical Society. Um, so we have people on the board, people on committees. Um, we've been revisiting our acquisitions committee and getting um, some new faces on there. Um, and then we also have a number of volunteers who just come by and help us out all the time. Uh, Paul Gill comes and you know, takes out our garbage for us and does little projects, maintenance projects around the facility. And um, and I think that even though they're paid staff, the, the city of Kodiak, Parks and Rec guys, um, in partnership with them, they come down and, and help us out and check on us. And we really appreciate it. So there's a real sense of community and team in everything that we're doing. Um, and it's nice to have that stability underneath us throughout throughout this all. So does anybody work in the building now? Yeah, we schedule time. Um, so the staff currently add uh, which hours they need to go in to work on different things. Um, and we have some protocols to clean and make sure that we're not um, sharing spaces within the building um, so that everyone can access whatever they need to in order to get their work done. Um, and we're starting to, uh, to look at we're kind of uh, following the lead of the Alutic Museum with a reopening plan and, and starting to kind of formulate how we're going to do that, when we're going to do that, why. Um, there's a lot to consider um, in terms of reopening, but for right now, we just kind of go in, take turns, um, make sure that we're, we're being as careful and safe as we can. Okay. April, you're taking the lead 
and reopening. But let's talk Thanks about news to me. <laughs> Thank <Sorry>. you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've been communicating. Um, you know, we we do share information between the museums in town, and we want, for the community's sake, to have sort of a shared understanding of the decisions that we are using to uh, actually reopen. The Alutic Museum, uh, like the Kodiak History Museum, has been closed to the public since, um, I think, that same day, the first day of spring break. Um, we were making the decision. I remember uh, texting with Sarah about, um, should, we be should we be closing right now? And, and we did follow the school district's lead. Um, I think one of the things that helped the Alutic Museum staff, um, and there's nine of us now, um, we did have to reduce a couple of staff this year for um, for multiple reasons, not just because of the, the COVID-19 crisis, um, but we have also, over the past few years, really worked on getting our, um, our data into secure cloud-based services, you know, online server, we moved to a platform called Zoho, uh, which is maybe similar to Microsoft or something, but it has internal, um, you know, messaging, all of your email, all of your uh, data about your donors, all of your project data is all integrated into one online platform, um, which is not super cheap, but I felt for um, an organization like a museum that's accredited, that wants to maintain a lot of control over its data, we needed to move to the cloud. And then um, that ended up being kind of fortunate we had done so because when staff needed to transition to working from home, they already had all of the tools available to them. So we just immediately shifted to uh, video teleconference uh, staff meetings. Our grant projects, um, we're really relying on them this year to keep the remaining staff that we have. Um, but being able to complete our grant projects has caused us to have to do um, even new learning about cloud-based activities, the different things we can offer. Um, I did my first live stream on the museum's 25th birthday just last week, um, which was notable for a few reasons. You know, this year is our 25th anniversary as an organization. It was gonna be a huge year of celebration for us. We had really big plans uh, for our birthday, for our annual meeting and culture fest. Um, all of those things are now most likely gonna be happening online. And um, part of the learning process of starting to offer things through live streaming or um, fully online is sometimes you have to learn things that you're not familiar with. Um, when I did the first live stream, I had no audio. I was all dressed up, you know, for the museum's 25th anniversary in my little office here in my house, <laughs> wearing my, my ivory jewelry and my, uh, you know, my nice shirt looking all business-like. I had a screen pulled up to do the, the drawing for our, our giveaway. And halfway through, as I was, you know, going on and on about how this was my fifth anniversary um, as the executive director and how proud I was to work at the museum, I started getting texts. We can't hear you. There's no. And I was, you know, since I was on a video, I had to control my face because I didn't want to seem panicked or uncomfortable. <laughs> 
So I quickly just started, you know, um, messaging back in the comments, you know, this is our first one. We're just going to have to do this typed in. So I did the drawings, I typed in the winners and I quickly wrapped it up and I said, oh my gosh, um, that was my first live stream. <laughs> so yeah, oh, there's been some challenges, some, um, you know, some funny stories, but for the most part, we've, we've been successful in, in moving our activities to the cloud, offering uh, things through Facebook, social media, our website. Um, we need to do these things because otherwise we would not be able to complete our grant projects that are keeping our staff employed right now. So what, that's, it's interesting. What kind of grant projects are, are we talking about that you've had to convert what would have been an in-person demonstration or a, an in-person project uh, to now say, let's do that a totally different way? What kind of things do you have to do? Well, one of the things that we have been producing are digital craft videos um, for a number of our education-related projects. Uh, such as the Reed project with the school district, the Munachtit project, which is a consortium for arts um, education. Um, instead of having a workshop with an artist, we have, um, and we're also really interested in keeping the artists employed right now because our, our physical storefront is shut down. So we are compensating artists to make videos and culture bearers to make videos with their iPhones and send us the clips we then edit them in just iMovie or something and get them online. Um, and our staff have really gone out of their way for, for some of those projects where you have maybe a certain group of teachers who are all trying to do it together. Um, they have actually gone out and like picked uh, cottonwood buds and made little kits so that they could make their South project at their house and they would drop it off on people's doorstep. Um, our assistant director has also been delivering uh, orders from our online store to people's doorstep so that they don't have to come into the museum while we're still closed. So, you know, a lot of what we're doing, we're just figuring it out as we go. When there's a need, we try to come up with a solution and I'm sure the other museums are, are facing a lot of the same uh, challenges as well as the same opportunities. You know, it's really interesting, Mike, because really what this has done is it's accelerated are the pressure on us to serve our communities well because in Kodiak we already have these unique challenges about you know being an an archipelago of various communities you know um, not only the villages and then the city of Kodiak but we also serve a lot of community members who don't live um, on the islands or in the state anymore as well we have a really um, strongly knit community, regardless of where people are. And these changes, like April was just talking about, are really strengthening us as institutions in some ways, you know, by making sure that we can serve people wherever they are. That, um, you know, being in the museum is a really um, important aspect of, of our mission and the work that we do. But at the same time, there's so much potential to grow and evolve in, you know, this contemporary world that we live in. And um, even things like that, making sure that you have a nice online store and that you're meeting people's needs, um, shipping to them or delivering to them, whatever it is. It's interesting to hear how each of our each of our institutions is kind of adapting and shifting a little bit to make sure that we're continuing to to serve our community and our mission well. 
I had just thought you wanted to keep us engaged and entertained, you know, while we all were looking for something to do. And and, and now that I, I realize that <laughs> you, when I was reading those announcements, that's what I was actually doing, helping you kind of continue doing your mission and, and keep up with the grant requirements. I, I, I really, I didn't even think of that. I just, that that's a great idea. I, I often think that you're, you're, I, I saw it when we first started talking, Toby, about the, the, the ideas that you had for bringing the, the museum to life um, with virtual learning and virtual exhibits. And you, you folks, I've always been more, um, more associated with you with the brick-and-mortar type. You know, mm -hmm. this was a destination. You went to the Aludic Museum. You went to the Branoff Museum, mm -hmm. the Kodiak History Museum, um, to treat, go through it like a regular museum. And now you're in a to mm -hmm. totally new platform where I saw museums in different parts of the world do that kind of online presence. But I didn't anticipate that we were going to be involved in doing the same thing as quickly as we are. Yeah. I mean, I really see like the the Maritime Museum as you know a clear you know, like example of how our work takes place in so many different ways. I mean, the going into the museum and having the museum experience is something that works well for a lot of people and is really valuable and has been you know forever. But the I also really think that the work we do is is like heart led by the heart and really makes a meaningful and significant personal connection with people about their histories and their stories and it validates who we are as people and so whether that's you know in an exhibit or you know sharing stories with a group of friends or going around and looking at some outdoor exhibits or or just knowing that I there is a place for me at the museum there is a place for my story at any of these institutions um, is really valuable. And especially in a time like this, you know, when we were, when the Kodiak History Museum was, was preparing to close, um, not really sure what we were getting into and kind of knew that this would be probably a few weeks, if not longer, but had no idea what the timeline was. Um, I started asking my staff to look into uh, you know, what had happened before in Kodiak and, and kind of realized very quickly that we don't have very much documentation on what happened the last time an epidemic came through um, our Alaskan communities or, you know, Kodiak in, in particular. I know Toby's been working on that, but, you know, whether we're open or not, the work that we do um, is, is just as relevant and, and needed um, as ever. You know, from the Maritime Museum standpoint, because we didn't have an exhibit space of our own, we've never had that. In some ways, the work just continued as we had always done. And it hasn't been that big of a shift in that. But what it has made us realize is that, with especially with live streaming, is that a lot of institutions and sectors in the world are going to switch to communicating through that. I mean, schools are struggling in a massive way to do that, universities especially, and museums now too. So while we hadn't done live streaming before, and we have not done it yet, we obviously are going to make use of that in the future because it just makes sense, and the technology is there, and I think that the world, because of this pandemic, 
has pivoted to a realization that being in the same physical space is not required for an awful lot of things. And uh, the work we've done for years has been off-site, um, in public spaces, um, outside, online, and through the mail. So we've, we can continue to do that. But the part that we hadn't taken advantage of before was the live streaming, and, and that's definitely now in the plan. It'll probably not be till next fall because of our resource. We're stretched a little thin here. But I think that's the real realization that has come is that you can you can do even more than we thought we could do because of the the technology is now it's very robust. Well, it's been an explosion throughout the world, and being all museums, you have an, an amazing amount of resources and models to work off of now, of things that are already working for other museums. With let's say you know you don't have to recreate the world because people with a lot more resources are creating environments in museums that you could mimic, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting, too, because there's a little bit of this, like, pendulum swing effect that's happening, you know, the feeling of being Zoom numb um, or, you know, wanting to engage people and not knowing how. It's like we've been thrust so quickly into this kind of, uh, realization that you know what are our services what is appreciated and and I find at the Kodiak History Museum that we are um, trying things out we're seeing if they're working we're asking for feedback and then we're just trying to follow the lead of the community in terms of what's working for them and it's interesting because like um, we're hosting uh, weekly community sits right now um, with one of our partners, uh, Monica Claridge, as part of the Hold an Introduction to Mindfulness exhibit. Um, and in, in those, Monica leads the community through a mindfulness practice. But what we're finding is that it's hard for people to be kind of responsible to go on at a certain time and be very dedicated in that time that needs at home with their families or whatever else. Um, might conflict with that availability. And so we've started to record them and share them online and post them on the new online website. And, and it kind of was an aha moment for us because that natural path of finding what's working for the community is also supporting our work to preserve and share that history. So, you know, in capturing it through recording it and sharing it online, we're building our resources and our reserves as well as protecting the, the energy and availability of our staff and our community as well. That's interesting. I, I, I think you missed per, just... Don't you miss the tactileness oh, yeah. of it? I you miss know? the smell of the museum. <laughs> you know, the, sorry, the, the, the Russian American magazine is the oldest building in Alaska. And, the, and I, you have to go in there when we reopen and smell it for yourself. And it's one of those things that it changes a little bit over time based in, it was interesting because with this recent redesign, the smell changed a lot and I got kind of worried. I was like, this doesn't smell like the museum. But then once we kind of stopped the, the new construction and everything like that, it came back. And that's one of the things we talk about at staff meetings is that just as soon as we open the door, we're like, Ah, I'm home again. <laughs> it smells the way it's supposed to. It's part of that experience. You know, it's not only the stories that you see and the colors and the images and the objects and all of that. It's being in the space and, and feeling it um, in a more holistic way. Oh, I miss going to the museum. 
Well, I would imagine the travelers would miss going to a museum, too, because this is a destination spot for people when they come here and get off the ferries and the tourists that come during the summertime. Yeah. That's got to be a huge part of your revenue stream for, you know. For it's a huge part of the revenue stream, but, you know, it's also a huge part of our work, to be honest. And so, like, it, usually in the in the slow season is when we really – dive deep and get into projects and get a bunch of work done when we check things off our list all the stuff that's been accomplished when summer comes we all have to shift gears we all have to be ready to host the space and be responsive to the cruise ships and all the tourists who come through and we're not able to to make the same um, progress on our on our other projects during the summer and so yeah it is a it's a considerable hit I mean just for the the Kodiak History Museum we're looking at you know a $90,000 um, loss of revenue this year between store sales and admission uh, you know just kind of a a lump estimate of what we're doing but um, you know at the same time we're still doing great work and we're excited to be able to focus on on some other projects that are really meaningful and as part of that balance too. So is it the same at the Aludic Museum? Are you more project driven or uh, in the summertime do you become more uh, focused on the people coming through the doors? Well, there is definitely a seasonality to our work at the Aludic Museum and, and like the Kodiak History Museum and many of the other uh, organizations involved in our travel industry, we are expecting a huge drop in revenues. Um, you know, we had 30 cruise ships or something last year, and then going down to probably zero or maybe a couple very late in the season, if we're lucky. Um, it, it means that, yes, we are also facing um, huge losses from that perspective. But um, we are a much different organization, I think, at the Elutic Museum, because we have a little bit more staff, we have people who specialize in the back end work and the front end work. And um, so I think that maybe there's a little bit less of, a, of an impact uh, from that way. But I think because of our the tightness of our funding, we really have had to focus um, more on our project funded work, our grants and our contracts. Um, so that the regular work of the museum, the everyday work, the behind the scenes things that we do just as a professional organization, those are the things that I worry about us not having time for um, because we are so devoted to our projects right now just to try to keep um, our funding coming in the door. Uh, we have been fortunate to already apply for and receive um, a couple of different stimulus grants and as well as that PPP loan, which we're not sure if that's a good thing or not. We'll find out if it gets forgiven. Um, and, you know, we're still doing a lot of other um, projects, just sort of business as usual. Our archaeology program is moving uh, full speed ahead for the year. We're doing project work. Um, funded by Fish and Wildlife Service or um, other entities, the BIA. Uh, Patrick Saltonstall, our uh, lead archaeologist, just returned from a coastal survey of Zachary Bay and Spearden Bay. Um, because it's remote work, um, you know, he can definitely do his social distancing while he's out there. And, and on that recent survey, uh, just I think he got back last week, um, he had found uh, 80 additional archaeological sites that had never been documented before and 100 sites total were visited. Um, 
the protection of historic sites and archaeological sites across the archipelago is one of the things that the Aleutic Museum is really proud of. Um, and we're happy that we're able to continue doing that when so many of our other activities are curtailed. Um, I was going to mention something that uh, what Sarah and Toby have been talking about, about the role of museums during this unique time that we're going through. I really agree that um, there, there is a role despite the fact that we're not on the front lines. You know, we all understand there are organizations, businesses, um, workers out there on the front lines that are at much higher risk um, and who are doing everything to save lives on a daily basis. So we don't want to try to put ourselves out there and say that um, we have a, a higher importance or a higher need for funding right now. But I also keep telling myself, culture is comforting right now. Um, I've noticed this, this need, these people who are reaching out to our museum through social media, through email, um, the fact that we're able to still answer their questions um, and provide them with resources. Um, even sometimes we're helping people by, by mail if they don't have um, you know, internet service and things like that. Um, there's a lot of people that talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how during a crisis, people will focus on bare survival, right? Um, but I think one thing that has been found throughout history is that even during times of crisis, people are drawn even more strongly to their history, to their family heritage, to their culture, um, to their native language. And we're noticing these things. We're noticing people reaching out. And I think it does show that we have a special role um, that may not yet be fully understood, but I think we do have a role in the wellness of our community and the resilience of our community during times like this. I, I would echo that very much so. I, I think that in the moment of a crisis, that's where you're at. And as April said, people are focused on survival or on their immediate needs, but always percolating in the background is this long cultural awareness that goes back thousands of years in human history. And in a way, in our very small way in this little town at the, at the edge of the empire in some ways, um, we are the keepers of that, of that cultural knowledge, which continues. I mean, the pandemic will pass and history will move on and I think all three of us, all three of these uh, organizations are, are actively working to document this moment as it affects this place. And it's important to, to keep that in mind, that we are keeping uh, a long cultural tradition that is cultural memory. And it's important and cultures and countries and nations and people have always done that and it's it's still happening now so i think in some ways while we're in the background of all this and we've been quietly biding our time we've all been very busy doing this work because as things open back up um, and we are able to engage the community in in more overt ways it'll become obvious that it was good that someone was keeping track of all this. I mean, I've been talking to people in, in Juneau at the Alaska State Museum. They are very much thinking the same way. This is a moment that we're all documenting and keeping track of and thinking of it as um, a, a part of a long continuum of history and just part of it. 
It's really interesting too, because um, one of the things that I think that we are immersed in that many other people don't get the chance to, to spend time thinking about is that when, when history is happening, you're kind of surviving it, right? We're kind of in the eye of the storm right now. And we're all just like we're seeing here, we're all, we're all getting through it the best that we can, but it's really hard to judge or evaluate what's happening on a broader scale, not only in terms of what's happening to us as individuals or to our community or our country or the world. Um, you know, we have all of these different sources of media telling us different things. And, you know, it's taking a while for the numbers to all fall in place. And it's very overwhelming emotionally as we're just trying to survive it. And and that really speaks to the importance of having that historical, you know, like objective mind frame here and in, in what is happening. And let's let's really um, sift through and, and figure out how we're going to tell this story later on. You know, looking back to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, how many people knew that there were waves of the flu that came through? I mean, normally, I think people are kind of familiar with the term 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. And now we're really looking at it in different ways in terms of, you know, how do we talk about epidemics that come through and then where they originated from and how long they lasted and how they impacted different parts of the world. Um, before we, we got on air, Toby was talking about in the salmon season and how that's, you know, this history has a, has a huge impact and we're still waiting to see what's going to happen and, and how we're all going to respond. And none of us have answers yet, but I think that just the process of how we made these decisions is just as important um, as what happens when it's all over and the understanding that we have about um, you know, what happened a century ago when, when a, a very similar um, crisis uh, occurred um, is, is, is meaningful and impactful. And I'm curious, Toby, Toby is, um, a April and I often spend a lot of time doing administrative work, um, but Toby gets to do the fun stuff. He gets to do the research. And he came in and he showed me this paper, but maybe he'll tell us a little bit about what he's been working on there. Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned the admin because I actually still have to do that part, I too. know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that does get distracting. It's, it's not my favorite part of the job, but it is a necessary part. But, yeah, and the other thing, too, is that, you know, the last big crisis that hit Kodiak was the, was the oil spill in 1989. Mm. And a lot of people in the harbor, a lot of fishermen who are old enough to remember it, uh, the feeling of the of the the oil spill, the emotional impact of it is 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 an this is an echo of that, and so in 1989, museums collected paper, documents and photographs, but in this one it's all electronic. So I I have a file that's getting bigger and bigger on my computer of all the emails, and proclamations and different ways that this pandemic is going to affect the maritime world in Kodiak, especially the fishing industry. Mm -hmm. And there is a, just a huge amount of that stuff, but it's all electronic. So even though we can't get out and do things, that stuff is still piling up. Yeah, so. the day-by-day -day project, we get memes and, sna mm -hmm. and screenshots of social media things you know, text messages between families, you know, it's, it's really interesting just the way that our communication has, has evolved and, and what we're seeing right now in terms of what people recognize as significant. 
So from the 1918 pandemic, we're in the era of newsprint where it's not being covered very much. There was no museum coverage at that time on the island, right? There was no newspaper. That there was, was no newspaper here either. That's the either. issue. Yeah. There was a there was a newspaper in Seward, and so as much as I've been able to dig up, that's where the 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 records of the public record of what was happening was kept. So in Kodiak, there's probably private letters and journals and things like that, but there is no public record like the Kodiak Mirror that you can go to and say, and on this day, this happened. But there there is a lot of kind of other documentation. There's Coast Guard records. Uh, in Bristol Bay, the Alaska Packers Association, when they showed up in the spring of 1919 in Bristol Bay, they, they and the pandemic over there in 1918 actually had two parts. The first part was on the Seward Peninsula in the fall of 1918. It came on a steamship, killed a lot of people on the Seward Peninsula. And then it was in kind of a hiatus over the winter. People didn't travel much. It was very cold, of course. And then it came back in the spring in Bristol Bay. So in April, May, and June is when it killed, they think, 40% of the adult population in Bristol Bay. But it came back six months later after it had already gone through Nome. And Alaska Packers Association showed up with their, their cannery boats in the spring, and they were the people on the ground. They had resources, they had doctors, they had facilities, they had equipment, and they tried to deal with it, and they used their own facilities as sick wards, but they also kept a really accurate record just through logs and company um, company records. They actually wrote a report about it, too. So the recording of a disaster, it's interesting how it gets documented. It's not always the way you think. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's informally or through commercial records, and that's what we found 100 years ago. So now all three of you have an opportunity to assist in documenting this. I mean, we have a lot of documentation of the oil spill. Mm -hmm. People spent a lot of time, a lot of resources trying to put together the storytelling that went with the oil spill. How do you hone your focus now to say, from each of your museum's perspectives, What's the important aspect of culture now you want to you want to document, and how do you how do you turn that into a project that you think in forty years might be worthwhile for a like a a lesson or a snapshot as to what we're doing right now? It's it's an interesting concept that you're describing because I think that museums have long been known as you know, the, the collector and the teller and the knower of all of the, the things when it comes to looking back. But our practices have, have changed and evolved. And, and really, um, you know, I would say that it's the, the community who recognizes and decides what's important. And then it's our job to protect that information, to keep it and to share it. Um, but uh, you know, at the at the Kodiak History Museum, we've been really trying to switch up our practices in terms of asking the community, you tell us what's important to you, what's made an impact on your life, what matters to you now, what are you concerned about, what should we know when we look back at this time. Um, it's less about our staff going out and trying to create those stories or, or pinpoint, you know, where the red flags are. Um, it's less research-based. Um, and more about just being a collecting institution and asking the community to tell us and, and to, to take that lead to make sure that our perspective is true um, and, 
and also to recognize that, um, you know, just because we're, we're doing the work and keeping the files and writing the grants and sharing the stories, um, it doesn't mean that there are stories to tell necessarily. Um, sometimes they are, but, but really in serving the community, we want to make sure that it's, we're following their lead rather than asking them to get in line behind us. I also think that it's too soon to know what the stories are. Yeah. Um, we're, we're collecting what looks like obvious clues to, to the moment, but stories have a way of telling themselves further down the road. And I think in five or 10 or 50 years, people will have a perspective that, of course, we don't have at the moment. And people will tell stories or construct exhibits mm-hmm. and narratives and things like that always based on the moment that you're in in the future looking mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. so we're, we're collecting all this all this stuff that's coming over the internet and emails and things that are related to you know the fishing world and the pandemic but i i don't think i can predict out of all of that avalanche of things where the stories will will come from in the future or even imagine you know when i was listening to you talk about you know that um, what happened in Bristol? What happened in Bristol Bay a century ago? One of the first things that came to my mind was that yeah, all those people passed away. You said about forty percent of the adult population. You know, think about the orphanages. Think about That's Woody huge. Island. You know, think about the way that the communities have evolved and changed and and come together in response. But it's just impossible to predict right now what the economic fallout is going to be or how you know all of these different. We, we just can't even imagine, I don't think, what's going to happen. And, and, and it's, and like you're saying, it's, you know, we just kind of, we take what we get as we go along, but it's going to take um, many years, I think, to have some clarity. Well, what's interesting, too, is that there have been pandemics documented as far back as when the Russians first got here. Mm. Every five or mm. 10 years, there was some disease that swept through in mostly in a local sense in Kodiak or Sitka or on Alaska. And the Russians kept pretty good records and then the Americans did too. So while we are thinking of this in a world as a world pandemic with a huge effect, in Kodiak, there's been, there's a long history of epidemics which killed a lot of people mm. uh, every so often. In, in 1819, uh, 200 years ago, there was a, uh, an epidemic of a flu that came from Sitka to Kodiak and killed about a, th- a third of the population in Kodiak. Wow. Um, and we have really good documentation on that. But the effect of it was, and I think we'll see this in this pandemic, we're all seeing how social distancing has created uh, new norms for how we communicate, how we meet as groups. Well, in Kodiak in 1819, and then again in 18 in the 1830s, there was a, another epidemic. It had the effect socially, and I'm sure April could expand on this, but the Russians used it as a way of consolidating their power on the island. It weakened the local native population, and uh, a lot of villages went away in the 1830s, and the Russians decided to keep people in larger villages, which were easier to administer. So it had effects which would not have been foreseen until it happened. And mm-hmm. I, I think we're, we're seeing that now. Of course, we're right in the middle of it, so it's, it's impossible to say. But there will be systemic changes in our world which will come from this, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, I would say that um, 
with the village consolidations in my mind, that's one of the biggest, I mean, in addition to, of course, the, the thousands of people who passed away during those early years of uh, contact with Western cultures. I know that they say there was about 64 villages around Kodiak Island about the time of contact with the Russians. And after those first couple big epidemics, they consolidated the survivors into seven villages. Um, and, you know, that's the number we have today. They're not the exact same villages, but it's pretty close. So if you think about the number of people on Kodiak Island that have died from pandemics in the past, the number of people in those 64 villages were about equal to the number of people we have living on Kodiak today, except that now most of the population is centered around the city of Kodiak or uh, and the Coast Guard base and, and just very small in the remaining villages. So, um, you know, we are, are very fortunate that this pandemic does not seem to ha be having the um, the same size of effect as previous ones, but we can certainly learn uh, from the past. And I know there had been a question about the things that Aleutic communities had done in the past to protect themselves during times of epidemics or pandemics. One of the things that surprises me the most when I read some of these really old newspaper clippings or um, oral histories is that um, the techniques that they were using in the Spanish flu epidemic, they're almost the exact same techniques that we're using today in this pandemic. They were saying that you should not go to visit each other's house. They were saying you should be wearing a mask when you're out of doors. Um, whenever you leave, you should not congregate in large groups. Um, it really felt to me like history is repeating itself. I know the villages on Kodiak had um, times where people would need to go into quarantine if they came back from travel. There were other techniques used uh, that I read about that I'm not sure if they were effective, like causing someone to have to jump over a, a bonfire to try to remove the contagion from them or, or things like that. Um, but it is an important part of of recording history as it happens. And I liked what um, what Sarah was saying about the community being in charge of the story now. I think a lot of what we're doing is kind of um, crowdsourcing of history. It's up to an individual nowadays to share their family's history to make sure that that information will be available for the future. It's not just who was in power or who was able to read and write like it may have been a long time in the past. I think this is a sort of a democratization of history in a way that if you feel like you have an important story, even if it's just a little story from a little town on an island in Alaska, that can be preserved for all of history. At the museum, um, the Lutic Museum right now, we're doing a community archive project where people can go online in this web form and upload images of their family uh, along with information. We're also going to people's homes and picking up photo albums from their front porch to um, scan photos from recent years all the way up until today. Um, so, so the work does go on, um, but I agree now it's really 
to an individual family or an individual person that is interested in their own heritage and history to get involved and to uh, participate. Well, they can all do it individually. Everybody has that capacity, but you as museums have a lot more capacity now to be able to save the recordings, right? I mean, yeah, you you have now the way more ability than before to collect more information and to make it broadly available than the one person whose document. It's like it's almost like the old photo album that's under somebody's bed who after 80 years they don't remember who it is anymore oh but and we have huge problems with that in kodiak so many people have photo albums and when they pass away only one of their kids gets the photo album and then all of the other descendants they don't have access maybe to the majority of their family photos and so by creating an archive at one of our local museums for your family photos or documents or or memoirs or anything um, it enriches the community history but it also guarantees that your grandkids and great grandkids Kids will be able to go to the museum and say, hey, I'd like to, to see what's in that Lactonin archive, or I want to see the, the artifact that my great uncle donated that he found on the beach in Uyak. Um, there's, there's so many cool things that we can guarantee to our descendants by participating in um, museums and in history work today. Well, and there's the, we, you now have to make that choice, you know, of what goes in the brick and mortar museum and what goes into the online repository that's available for an audience worldwide. It's, it's gotta be taxing on your ability to kind of think through how you, how you wanna the preserve yourself into the future. Yeah, the process is very complex because if you look at technology over the last number of decades, think about how much the, the radio station has changed and you know, what what types of CDs you use or digital files work best for you or, you know, uh, the different software programs you use. That's something that museums continually struggle with is trying to um, not only figure out how to safely preserve them, um, you know, aging files, uh, VHS tapes, things like that as technology evolves, but making sure that they're usable is kind of an additional layer of, of our challenge in terms of, you know, um, establishing keywords and making sure that, you know, we've gone through all of our systems to make sure that people can find what is this. A lot of what happens um, that we see is that people will bring us something um, and unless they're willing to walk through the step to learn and to document what is this and why is it significant and tell us more about what you're donating so that that way we can make sure we understand what we're caring for. Um, you just, you know, museums are kind of at the risk of collecting things but not having a whole lot of information about it. It would be hard for somebody to come to the, the radio station and say, oh, I want to, you know, research um, the 1964 tsunami and then just look at your wall of CDs and say, oh, where do I begin? You know, and so that's kind of, uh, you know, a, a comparison to the work that museums do is that there's a lot of steps that are necessary in order to make sure that we can adequately communicate and understand and represent um, the story or the artifact or the picture or whatever you're giving to us, even if it's in digital form um, so that it can be usable. You know, that's interesting you mentioned that, Sarah. A few years ago, I worked as a grant reader for IMLS, the Institute of Museum and Library Services. And 
a, a fair amount of the grant proposals that came through were um, collections where people had privately collected some subject matter uh, in their town. May, it might have been related to old cars or knickknacks or whatever. And they, some of these people had a house or three barns filled with all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And they were getting old, and then somebody had come along, and they were trying to organize it, and they were trying to get money to pay to get somebody in there to sort yeah. of catalog it because it was just they had collected without any system. They just threw it in the barn. Some of these collections were amazing, but it's amazing how many museums have started like that mm -hmm. where people collected things that they knew were important. Uh, they actually had the stories on them, but they didn't, they didn't document it so you could find it. And, you know, I was just reading last night about the guy who started the Bettman Archives. He was this German, uh, a Jewish guy who left Germany when Hitler came to power. And he got to America in 1938 with a couple of big trunks filled with photographs and very little else. Mm. And he had saved all these photographs, which he had been collecting in Europe for like 30 years. And that became the basis for the Bettman Archives, which is now owned by Bill Gates, I think. Mm. And it has, I think, four million photographs. And they keep them in a, in a vault in a in a mine underneath uh, someplace in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. But the idea was he had all these photographs, which were historically important photographs, and they needed to be kept someplace. But his great strength was he was a huge catalog kind of a guy. It was very methodical. So that tradition of keeping things straight was part of the collection from the beginning. But yeah. I mean, we all struggle that, with that as museums. It's part of the mission and you have to find resources to keep track of the things that you have. And it, it's always a tough thing sometimes. It's a practice. It's part of a, you know, education work that we do, the outreach we do. I think the Luchik Museum's current archives project is a really great example of that. It's, it's asking people to take the time now. You know, don't wait until something gets passed down to you and you don't know what it is, you know, and we have limited information about it. Um, we don't understand how it connects to our history. Um, it's important to just as a regular practice think about what what are these things that we have and what stories do they tell? And, you know, uh, kind of a common response that we offer to people is it's not about, it's not, it doesn't matter how valuable it is. You know, if you have a piece of um, incredible artwork that cost a lot of money. That is unique and precious in its own way because of the story you can tell about it, not because of the worth of the artifact. And so, um, you know, whether it's planned giving in terms of your finances or your photographs, it all matters. So, um, you know, now while we're doing nothing else, is a good time to maybe think about what what is meaningful and significant to me and, and what might um, belong in a museum someday. Toby, how does the Maritime Museum fit into the current picture? Is there, is there an issue or a project that comes to your mind of how you guys would fit in? Into, give me some context and, here. How does the pandemic affect your mission? Is there, does it, your focus direct towards this is something that historically I want to we want to be part of. We, we thought of that from the very beginning of just documenting it um, as it affected the maritime community. But, you know, as, as I mentioned before, it didn't have a huge immediate effect on us other than our ability to gather money from fundraising events because we were already 
we didn't have a space that people could come in, so we didn't have a door to close, really. But we have been thinking about the pandemic as a historic event, but as, how, as far as how it's affected us as a museum, it's mainly been the fundraising part of it and the earned income part with the cruise ship tours and things like that. The rest of it, I still went to go to work every day in my little hidey hole office down in the harbor, and I, I've just been working away. So in some ways, it hasn't affected us as much as other museums. And um, I think that's been a kind of an interesting lesson is to realize that this unintentional model of a building without walls actually was well-suited to just continue its operations. It's interesting, too, because the lost earned revenue is, is one component, but another part that we haven't really directly addressed is the fact that our grant opportunities have changed drastically. You know, the, the funding that is available for, uh, for our state or our local community is shifting based on where immediate need is. Are people able to eat? Are people able to stay in their home safely? Um, and, and so there is some impact, too, to the museums based on um, where, um, you know, philanthropy is kind of oriented at the moment. Um, we have support available to us through um, the CARES Act um, funding. I'm not using the term correctly, but it's been, um, it's funneled down through um, the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities. Some of that has come to lo- to state organizations, um, like the Humanities Forum, and is it's helpful to know that it's going to reach us in some ways, but <clears throat> there are different challenges that we're facing in terms of what our needs are. So if you look at the Alutic Museum or the History Museum or the Maritime Museum, as we're all describing now, we have very different needs in response um, to what's happening um, and and realities for the future. And it's a, it's hard for us even to, you know, a, as administrators for these organizations to, to write a grant narrative about what's happening, just as it is hard to describe what's happening in the world today. We're not exactly sure what it's going to look like, but, um, you know, the lost revenue that we're dealing with, there is support out there to make up for it through the payroll protection program or these other uh, funding opportunities, but it's, much riskier, much riskier than admissions um, from cruise ships. So it makes me fearful for the drift that would occur. You know, if you chase the grant funds to just to get the grant funds and then you find yourself doing something that you really weren't intending to do, but you just want to fill the coffers again. One thing we've seen um, statewide that I, I really appreciate is that um, for example, the, um, the state museum has a fund available to us called the Grant and Aid. It's typically used for collections, management, and care. Um, and this year, they, um, Angeli Grantham, our very own, has, um, is working over there now. And, and they've made the decision to uh, switch next year's funding to operational support. Um, most of the grants that museums get are project-based. They accomplish a, a specific task in terms of how we care for our collections. But right now, it's, it's really hard to fulfill those projects. Um, museums Alaska is another statewide agency that supports museums. And um, they, they had just closed a round of the collections uh, management fund. Um, everyone had proposed their ideas and said, this is what we're going to work on in our collections. And then, boom, everything closed and staff weren't sure what they were going to do. And um, I serve on the board of directors for Museums Alaska. And we sat down and we said, is this fair 
to ask our museums to hold to an original concept that they put together a month before all of this happened. And so um, there is kind of a flexibility in the, the money that it is administered on a statewide level, at least, where we were able to say both the um, money through uh, the state um the state museum and museums alaska to say yes we can still do this or no this is absolutely not a priority for us anymore right now we just need to pay our bills and there's been responsiveness that we've been really um grateful for april i know you you talked a little bit about the ppp loan and you have some other small grants and i think the alaska community fund actually uh, gave you a, a little bit of money for operational purposes right that is correct. Yes, we've received um, a emergency fund uh, from the Alaska Community Foundation, a grant from them. Um, there was also another grant that we received from the Alaska, the Rural Cap Foundation, which is helping us pay for some of our online tools right now. And so there have been definitely some new grants pop up that are connected to the stimulus uh, some of those are uh, operations-only grants, which are especially appreciated right now because, um, as you said, when you are doing a grant project, you need to complete the objectives and activities and tasks in the grant, not necessarily what might be the most urgent activity for your museum on any given day. So, as I mentioned in the beginning of the broadcast, you know, we've switched to mostly grant work to keep ourselves going, but we know that that's only a temporary solution. We do need to recover the unrestricted funds that have been lost through this disaster for us to really have a, a long-term future. Is there is there any way to monetize online traffic to museums? <laughs> we, we've been tracking ours a lot more, and it's really interesting, actually. <laughs> Staff meetings were like, we had 90 visitors yesterday. Was that you? Nope, that wasn't me this time. You know, And so it is nice to see that, but really all that we can do is you know, add a little pop-up or say, please consider making a donation. Uh, you know, I think it's, we're kind of at this, um, this point where at least for the Kodiak History Museum, we're like, okay, we, we have stability for the most part. There's still risk there. There's still some uncertainty there, but we don't want to ask people to give money to us if they need to do something else with it. You know, we don't want to demonstrate any kind of urgency about, you know, the, the stability of the museum, even though we are concerned as well. Um, and so we just kind of are trying to, to rely on the generosity of the community and just um, under, with understanding that everybody is going through a hard time and, and we're all doing our best. And, you know, I think we're going to continue to shift and, and adapt um, moving forward. And we might explore some different ways that we can do some, you know, paid programming workshops online or, or something like that. But it, as far as the website goes, you know, for the most part, we just have, um, we're putting up whatever information we can, just because we want, we, we truly do want to serve our mission. We want to serve our community. And it's not about the money. Um, it's about the work that we're doing. And so, you know, we, we try to be thoughtful about when and, and what we ask for support um, from the community. Um, you know, it's interesting, but even just the last, what, two years ago now, each of us museums, each of the three of us had a capital campaign going at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the three of us were like, oh my gosh, like, are we, are we setting ourselves up here? I mean, are we creating a conflict for the community by having three major projects going on at one time? But really we, at the, 
we kind of like after talking it through a little bit we realized this just really demonstrates the incredible amount of support um, for the work that we're doing in our communities and for the support of the community for you know a, a major renovations project at the Kodiak History Museum building a new a new outdoor exhibit with beautiful new signs by the way I drove by and saw some of the new signs up there um, you know do completely overhauling some community space owned by the city into the Ancestors Memorial Park um, you know and so I think we try to practice more of an abundance mindset we, Kodiak is an incredibly resourceful place and supportive community. We have what we need. Um, we have great partnerships here. We will continue to adapt and thrive. Um, but, but we do appreciate everyone's generosity. I know that um, there's just times that come up and, and just know that when we do launch a campaign and we say, hey, we need your help in general, it's because we do need it. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. Toby, your world must be, I mean, You've you've taken a serious hit because of this pandemic, right? Well, the, the timing was was kind of strange because uh, we our main uh, fundraising is Comfish. We meet a lot of people at Comfish, and people re up their memberships. And then uh, the Crab Fest, we have our Crab Festival booth, which is earned income, and then the cruise ship tours. So those three things have evaporated. So we've had to be creative. Uh, there's some grant money out there. Uh, we're going to be okay. It's going to be uh, risky, but I think we'll be okay. But it, it, it just goes to show that a meteor can strike yeah. that you never saw coming. Um, luckily, our overhead is, is pretty low, and um, we've been conservative in how we've handled the money, and I, I think things are going to be okay, which is amazing because I think if two years ago if I had looked at my budget and said we're going to lose those three things, I don't – it, it w wouldn't have penciled out, but somehow we've kind of pulled it off here. Let's let's go into the summer before we close here and talk about it. You know, if April, you're taking the lead. On Sorry, April. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a huge time for summer traffic, which may or may not happen. But, you know, yeah, is, under the governor's mandate now, Museums are able to open, are they not? In some limited then, capacity? Yeah, we do have special uh, requirements if we do want to open. And we've been working with the city on our reopening plan for the museum, which I believe is approved, but it doesn't have a specific date on it right now. Um, it's one thing to be able to list out the ways that you're going to be in compliance with the state mandates on your reopening plan, but sometimes it's a different thing altogether, being able to actually um, acquire the supplies that we need to be open. We were having trouble finding enough hand sanitizer, especially um, the ability to have hands-free uh, hand sanitizing stations. We are going to be needing to sanitize our workstations every hour, um, and we were having trouble finding uh, CDC-approved cleaners that could also be safely used on our exhibit cases without um, damaging the plexi. Um, and when you're applying a, a decontaminant or sanitizing solution on an hourly basis uh, to an exhibit case or to anything in the store, um, a lot of them have to also be left on for 10 full minutes before wiping them off. 
Um, all staff members are going to be needing to have their temperature taken at the beginning of each shift. We'll be spacing out our employees, um, hopefully being able to have different employees in different rooms, um, although they'll also still be required to wear a mask when they come in. So there's a lot of behind the scenes preparations that we're doing. Um, we had one staff member uh, make some handmade cloth masks for every staff member to make sure that everyone had at least one Alutic Museum themed mask. Um, but it's definitely an issue to make sure that everyone has what they need because, you know, our employees are one of our most important things that we have. We don't want to risk them or the public by opening too early, um, even though we know the basic framework that we're going to need to follow. So do you even have an idea when you, you think you might try and reopen? Right now, I'm kind of shooting towards the second week of June. We have a board meeting coming up next week where we'll be sharing the reopening plan and some of the realities with the Aleutic Heritage Foundation Board of Directors, which governs the Aleutic Museum, and hopefully getting some input from them on their um, comfort level and their risk tolerance. Because for any organization that's reopening to the public, especially one like the museum, where people are considered um, congregating there, there's always a risk inherent with reopening, um, especially when I believe here in the state we haven't yet past our, our peak of our uh, infections. You're looking at me. I don't know when we're going to reopen at the Kodiak History Museum. We, as I touched on earlier right now, we're in the middle of a big staff transition. And, um, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind is we need a minimum of two people in the space at any given moment that we're open. Um, and with three people who are able to work, one has a four-year-old, the other, you know, is... is um, it's an incredible challenge um, to try to figure out staffing right now. We're hiring, but um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be able to to predict any time period of of when we would. Um, you know, just as April said, our, really our team is is the biggest priority for me, uh, making sure that you know everyone is safe. Um, you know, to to be honest, the, the museum, the work that we do is 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 a passionate pursuit. It's not something that we do because we get paid very well. And so I want to make sure that people are happy and safe and that their families' needs are met. Um, and, and to be honest, I'm not really expecting a whole lot of people to come through or a whole lot of sales to happen that would justify putting strain on the staff right now. So um, yeah, I, I, I said April's in the lead mostly because I think that they're a bigger institution and they are a little bit ahead of us in, in that regard. But right now I'm just kind of watching and waiting to see what most, most other museums around the state are going to do. And we're kind of the same size as a lot of other institutions. And I just don't get the sense that anyone knows what's happening right now. You're good. You're good. The Maritime Museum. Yeah, you're good. Huh? <laughs> we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so April, are, are the, the dig programs going to happen this summer? We will be conducting archaeology programs this summer, both survey work and um, possibly, you know, some a small dig. But um, this is going to be largely out of the public domain. We're not doing a community archaeology project this year where individuals can sign up uh, for open days of, of digging. 
However, if people are interested in becoming a volunteer um, on one of the archaeology programs, it's always good to reach out to the museum for future opportunities when things do open up more. Um, but yeah, our archaeology team, Patrick and Molly, they're going to be busy this summer. I think Molly's um, out doing some uh, cultural resource work out in uh, Chiniac uh, right now. And Patrick, of course, just got back from, from one survey and is going to be doing another. So the, the important uh, archaeology and site protection work still continues. Well, that's a good lead into where I wanted to close at, which was to ask each of you how the community can help you right now, if the community has ideas to offer for um, adding to whatever they're doing right now to, to add to what you do. I mean, how, how can keep people get involved and how can they pitch ideas to you maybe for commu communicating what the stories are that they think would be important? Our website is our, is our main portal for, for that. And we have a, an electronic newsletter that's going out here in the next day or two, which will have some details on that. Kim? Yeah, the website is a good place to go. You can find out a lot about what we're doing. Um, I think I'd ask people to consider becoming a member or a sustaining member. Um, you know, more than anything else, I think that's going to demonstrate meaningful community support and give us a little bit of income that helps us um, really stay afloat and be able to predict um, some months down the road when we when it's hard to do that in other ways right now. Um, and then also to uh, continue to, to think about what, how, how do you want to tell your story about this part of your life experience? Um, and, and please keep any objects or artifacts at home. Um, now we're not accepting physical items, but um, we welcome any kind of conversation anytime. Give us a call. Talk, talk to us about what you're experiencing and what your ideas are about what you might want to give to the museum um, and we'll help you with, with documenting and making sure that we're being prepared um, for anything in addition to uh, the digital submissions right now. Now, the community sits Zoom chat thing. Is that exercises and a community discussion? Um, yeah, it's both. So, um, so part of our new um, temporary exhibit model is the idea that we share resources about topics um, so if you go to our website and explore the hold and introduction to mindfulness ex online exhibit, you'll find a bunch of resources that you can do. There are recordings there that are exercises, like you're saying, if you're just feeling curious about mindfulness and what it might be able to offer for you right now. Um, actually, as I was on my way here, Terry Gross, Fresh Air, was talking about mindfulness and, um, it was really interesting. It's, it's really about, um, you know, maintaining a, a center through all of these things that are happening around us and whether it's a, a pandemic or just daily stress, whatever it is, um, taking the time to really consider the perspective and the angle that, that you might bring to a situation um, is helpful. But yeah, so you can go onto our website, do a couple of those practices, find more about mindfulness. The, the Zoom community sets are something that uh, we offer at a specific time. You can get more information on our Facebook page, and that's an opportunity for you to interact with Monica Claridge, who is leading a lot of the mindfulness efforts um, in the community with the school district and otherwise. So that's more of an opportunity to, to interact and engage around the topic. April? 
I would piggyback on what uh, Sarah said about becoming a museum member. A membership for a museum is something that kind of brings you into the inner circle. You get the newsletter, you get, um, you know, our, our membership offers free admission for the member and um, sometimes their family, depending on the level, um, which doesn't help right now while we're closed, um, but it will help in the future because we do um, hope to reopen. Um, but but showing that you're a member is is a great way to show the whole community that you believe in in this organization and this mission. Another way for people to get involved, of course, is through our social media. Right now, we're having a lot of stuff going up on our website. But anything we put on the website, we also post to social media. So it's pretty easy for us to uh, connect with people through Instagram or Facebook these days. Um, people who want to communicate directly with staff can send messages through social media or through our website. Um, but again, I encourage you to think about um, what a, a membership to um, any of our museums, um, as well as our local public radio station, might be a good idea for your family. Thank you for the plug. Nice. Well, uh, thank you. It was a very pleasant conversation. Thank you all for coming in and uh, sharing your thoughts about what's happening. I think it's it was really engaging discussion. Thanks for having us, Mike. We'd be happy to do yeah, it anytime. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Mike. Yeah, thank you. It's great. You guys all have a great day. You let's, too. Let's join Laurie Townsend now, who's talking about something probably important. <laughs>